0: Thank you, Gordon and Renee, for our music this morning. Welcome to those of you joining us on live stream again this morning. We're in Psalm 16, if you have your Bibles. As we begin, I want to say a message about Memorial Day, uh, a few words about it. This is Memorial Day, and we're uh, remembering that, of course, uh, here in uh, our service, as you probably are too. You know, the Bible sanctions and even honors soldiers who protect their nation. That's always been true of God throughout history, the Old Testament, the New Testament, the Age of Grace. As a matter of fact, uh, the Lord himself often used military situations as illustrations in his teachings. The Apostle Paul uses many uh, military illustrations, and they wouldn't do that if it wasn't something honorable to do and uh, so we have that honor throughout the Scripture also. As well, many uh, very prominent Bible characters were soldiers, if you remember. Of course, Joshua, and you remember uh, all of his conquering of the land. Saul and and Jonathan, and then David, of all people, King David, uh, was a soldier. As a matter of fact, uh, when Saul and Jonathan were killed in battle protecting their nation. David wrote the eulogy in 2 Samuel chapter 1. And of that long chapter, he said in verse 19, the beauty of Israel is slain. This is about Saul and Jonathan both. The beauty of Israel is slain upon the high places. How are the mighty fallen, David says. And then in verse 23, Saul and Jonathan were lovely and pleasant in their lives, and in their death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles, and they were stronger than lions. And so even though, in a way, Saul was kind of David's enemy, uh, David praised him as a soldier and as someone who gave his life for his country. And so that is a wonderful uh, thing. Now, in today's text, if I can borrow a phrase from verse 3, it said, they are the excellent ones in the earth. And I think that those uh, who have given their life for us to have the freedom to worship today as we're doing in our church and many churches around the world today, uh, we call them excellent ones, and we're thankful for that. I know that throughout history, many believers who have fought in military uh, for their country and in our country, many of them have given their lives also that we might have this freedom. And so praise the Lord for those who have, and praise the Lord for those uh, trusting God who knew that they were honoring a calling from God would give their lives for our country and our freedom. So we're thankful for that, and uh, I mentioned that this morning because I want you to know here at Faith Baptist Church Uh, that we love our country and uh, we love the freedoms that we have and we pray to God for his protection and blessing and grace upon our country. I want you to look at Psalm 16 and as we begin, I want to read the first four verses to you for those of you listening so you uh, are kind of back in the text again. A Mick Tom of David, preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. That was our first message. Today's text is verse 2 through 4. O oh, my soul, you have said to the Lord, you are my Lord. My goodness is nothing apart from you. As for the saints who are on the earth, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Their sorrows shall be multiplied who hasten after another god. Their drink offerings of blood I will not offer, nor take up their names into my lips." I read a report this week, and I shared it with our Wednesday night prayer meeting from the Cultural Research Center. It's called the American Worldview Inventory, and this study reported that of American pastors across this country, less than, fewer than fifty percent of pastors in this country have a Christian worldview. Isn't that a striking conclusion? We may ask uh, what are the questions and how did they uh, come to that conclusion, but these were evangelical men who did this study and said that fewer than 50% of the pastors in our country even have a Christian worldview. And then, of course, the percentages went down from there, so the average layperson in our churches and across our country uh, far fewer than 50 percent, have a, a Christian worldview. I think that means we're in trouble as a country. I think that means we need a revival and a turning back to God. I wonder if we can still sing or pray, as it were, America, America, God shed his grace on thee. Do we pray like that? Do we ask that as a country? Faith of our fathers, holy faith, we will be true to thee till death, in spite of dungeon fire and sword. I wonder if we as Americans can say that uh, any longer. We should be able to. Well, I want you to know that those of us who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in God's word are still holding to the faith of our fathers, or as Jude said, the faith that which was once delivered to the saints, We're holding a book in front of us that was finished 2,000 years ago and had been writing for 3,000 years. And we're holding this word as still God's word to us and the foundation of our faith as we look at this world and we do what we do and believe what we believe. And yet we're reading a psalm that was written 3,000 years ago of a prophecy of Jesus Christ who came 2,000 years ago. It's quite an amazing book when you think about it. And what are they talking about? They're talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ. How do we know that? Look in your text all the way down to verses 9, 10, and 11. And as I have said in the two previous messages, we know that these verses are the words of Jesus Christ. We know that because Peter tells us that in Acts 2 and Paul tells us that in Acts 13 and here's what he says, therefore my heart is glad, my glory rejoices, my flesh shall rest in hope. That means of course that he that the incarnation of God into flesh happened, you will not leave my soul in Sheol or hell, nor will you allow your holy one, that's Jesus, to see corruption. You will show me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand, that's his ascension into heaven, are pleasures forevermore. You have in those verses the incarnation of Christ, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ, and the ascension back to heaven. And so from, from 1,000 B.C., this gospel of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ has been preached in many different ways. And I say this is worth giving our souls to, as verse 2 is going to tell us. And this is worth giving our lives for, and that is for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You have a, a brief outline in front of you, and so uh, if you have that, uh, you can follow. Uh, three simple thoughts. The first is in verse 2, I call the dedication of our souls, Oh, my soul, you have said to the Lord, You are my Lord. And then he also says, my goodness is nothing apart from you. Now, there are two kind of difficult statements here. As a matter of fact, those who make comments on the Scriptures and write things about them will tell you. These are two difficult things to even translate. I want you also to notice that you see that expression, oh, my soul. It's a great expression. We find it throughout Scripture. But it's in italics, right, which means that it wasn't in the original text. But it's supplied for a good reason, because it is the Lord saying to himself, This is what I'm saying to God. This is what I'm saying. You are my Lord. You know, the the cry of the soul, I want you to think about this today. The cry of the soul is the deepest part of your being, there's no more you than your soul. This is really who you are. This is the cry of of the real person, the one way down inside you. If minus everything else, you are a soul, and you are an eternal soul. And so you have here David saying, writing, and yet the Lord himself saying, "Oh my soul, you have said, that is you, my soul, have said to the Lord, you're my Lord. That's a deep thing to think about. Now, remember, we've been exploring the fact that this is a messianic psalm. I just read to you verses 9 through 11, which are the words of Jesus Christ. An amazing thing when you think about it. Something written a thousand years before Jesus came are the very words of Jesus Christ. And we're told that by Peter. We're told that by Paul under inspiration that these are the words of Christ. And since that's true, and verses 9 through 11 are definitely about Christ, we have to kind of take this that all of this psalm is about Christ. I have enjoyed Woodward Kroll's uh, words on this psalm as I've been reading them as i have studying it. He said this, According to the Apostle Peter in Acts 2 and the Apostle Paul in Acts 13, This psalm relates to Christ. It expresses his feeling of human emotion when, during his sufferings and death, he called on God to preserve him. And so, if this is about Christ, look back at verse 2, and let me kind of give this interpretation. When he says, O my soul, that's Jesus speaking about his own soul, his human being that he took when he came to this earth, you have said to the Lord, that is, you, my soul, have said to God the Father, Jehovah God, you are my Lord, Adonai, or my master. And so here is the Lord himself crying out in his soul to God the Father, saying, you are my God and you are my Lord. That sounds right for the Lord Jesus Christ. He gave us that example. And so Jesus himself, if I can uh, let you recall a couple things, on that triumphal entry, that Sunday afternoon when he rode into Jerusalem and the people were shouting, Hosanna, save us now, and then questioned him afterwards, we have in John 12, 27, Jesus saying this. This is, this is a few days before he died. Now is my soul troubled. Notice his, his speaking of his soul again. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this cause came I unto this hour. Father, glorify thy name. Then there came a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. This is the Lord in his earthly walk crying out to God in his soul. We have it again, of course, in Matthew 26, 38, in that Garden of Gethsemane prayer, when he said, uh, uh, My soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. My soul is exceeding sorrowful. And since the Lord expressed things like that in his life-earthly ministry, we can see verse 2 being the words of the Lord Himself: Oh, my soul. You have said to the Lord that is God, You are my God. As a matter of fact, let me, let me quote you a few Psalms that, uh, where David uses this expression. And that's right of David to do. David is writing this Psalm. He's, he's a prophet, Peter says, and he's giving us the words that Jesus later will say. But David's saying, I can pray this prayer, I can say this kind of thing. And that's why he writes this psalm. But listen to him in 25.1, all of these from the book of Psalm. 25.1, for example, Unto thee, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. O my God, I trust in thee. In chapter 42, verse 1, As the heart panteth after the water brooks, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. In chapter 42, verse 5, why art thou cast down, O my soul, and why art thou disquieted in me? Hope thou in God. In Psalm 103, verse 2, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. And finally in 116, 7, Return unto thy rest, O my soul, for the Lord hath dealt bountifully with thee. And those are just a few of where David in his soul cries out to God, following the example of his Lord Jesus Christ who did the same thing. Well, you know, we often do this as believers. And I just picked out a few phrases from our songbook. When we stand and we open our our hymnal and we sing songs that the believers have sung for ages or for hundreds of years, perhaps... Uh, then we do this too. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art. Then my, listen to that. My soul is singing, how great thou art. Oh, my soul, praise him, for he is thy health and salvation. We have praise coming from our soul. Be still, my soul, the Lord is on thy side. Bear patiently the cross of grief And pain. Be still, my soul, in the Lord. And then we have, Awake, my soul, and sing of him who died for thee. Wake up, my soul. Uh, This is what I need to do. That is the cry of our soul, and I think it's the cry of your soul. It ought to be. Here's the voice of believers following the example of our Lord and the example of David, uh, his servant, and the uh, saints that have gone before us as we cry out to the Lord in in these kinds of things, too. So here's the dedication of our soul in verse 2. First of all, in this first difficult phrase, you've said to the Lord, you are my Lord. Now, we have a second phrase there that's just about as hard to translate and also to understand. Uh, My goodness is nothing apart from you. It's been translated various ways, and as I said, Hebrew scholars, uh, much better than I, uh, have had a hard time translating this. For example, let me just give you a few. If you have the King James Version, it says, My goodness extendeth not to thee. And, of course, the New King James, my goodness is nothing apart from you. A Hebrew interlinear would say, I have no goodness except in you. And the Greek translation of the Old Testament, thou hast no need of my goodness. And I like the Holman translation that said, I have no good besides you. I have nothing besides you. I have nothing that you need, Lord. And so what what does this phrase mean? Again, let me give you good men. I like Woodward Crowell, as I said, who said, Jesus' goodness is not for God's benefit. God doesn't get something from you, me, or even from his own son that makes him better or worse. God is God. Charles Spurgeon said, the atonement was not for Jesus' benefit. Jesus didn't die for himself. He had no need of God's goodness for himself. Ironside said, Jesus' soul said to Jehovah, thou art my master. And I like that one. You are my Lord, Adonai. You are my master. Gabeline said it I come to do your will, O Lord. You remember a quote from the book of Hebrews. So I like what Ironside said when he said, My soul has said to the Lord, You're my master. I don't need anything but that. You don't need anything but, from me, but I need everything from you, so to speak. You are my master. My conqueror, Adonai would mean, my leader, my soul's desire. You are the only good. You remember when a rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, uh, Good master, what must I do to have eternal life? And, and what was the Lord's answer to him? There's no, no one good but God. He doesn't need anything from you or me. God is good. God is, can't be anything better, he can't be anything worse. He is only good. And so here is the cry of the Lord's soul, and I think also of mine, uh, of our souls, I should say, saying, Lord, my goodness uh, is nothing to you. You're my Lord, you do what you want with me. Not my will, but thine be done, the Lord would say. Let me also uh, give you some, some thoughts from the Bible writers. For example, David in Psalm 25, 7 says, Remember not the sins of my youth, nor my transgressions, according to thy mercy. Remember thou me for thy goodness' sake, O Lord. David realized this truth. In 31:19, he said, Oh, how great is thy goodness, which thou hast laid up for them that fear thee, which thou hast wrought for them that trust in thee before the sons of men. And in one o seven eight oh, oh, that men would praise the Lord for His goodness and His wonderful works from the children of men. And then let me direct you to two verses in the New Testament where we're instructed to understand that all of our goodness comes from God. 1 Corinthians 1, 30 and 31, But of Him are you in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. And isn't that what the psalmist is saying? I have nothing to glory in, only in your goodness. That's all I can glory in. And then uh, in Romans eleven thirty four, who hath known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed to him again. For of him, and through him, and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. And so we're instructed also in our New Testament to say these very same kinds of things. You know what God wants from you? God wants your all. God wants everything from your soul on. And so he said, the Lord said in Mark twelve thirty and in all the Gospels, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. This is what the first half of the commandments are about. You'll have no other gods before me. I want your all. And so when we cry out, folks, as the psalmist does here, "Oh my soul, say to the Lord... You are my master. You are everything to me. We need to be doing that. We can't, the Bible says, serve God and mammon. We can't put our hand to the plow and look back. We must count the cost before we follow him, and we must take up our cross daily and follow him. We can do no less because the Lord says, unless you do those things, you cannot be my disciple. We can't have 50% of a Christian worldview and a 50% of a worldly worldview and be His disciples. Our soul, 100%, must belong to Him. And so there's the dedication of our souls. Now, also, two other thoughts that follow in these next two verses. In verse 3, I call it the identification with believers. And so in verse 3... As for the saints who are on the earth, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. These might be difficult phrases too, but first of all, uh, this first phrase, for the saints who are on the earth, this is a picture of God's people on the earth who were looking for him to preserve them, who have put their, the, the trust of their souls in God. Those people who were on the earth. Those saints, by the way, saints in the Old Testament means holy ones, and in the New Testament it means holy ones. If you've come to the Lord, you are a saint, and you are a holy one because of his goodness and his righteousness. As for them, they're the ones who found uh, help from me. They're the ones who found goodness in God. And so as for the saints that are in the earth, He said, these are the excellent ones. These are the ones in whom is all my delight. Excellent means noble or worthy. They are the benefits of God's goodness. Is all my delight? Yes. That word means my pleasure, my desire. As a matter of fact, the word delight here would sometimes be used in the sense of a marriage proposal. If You can imagine... Uh, a man saying to the girl that he's fallen in love with, You are all my delight. I want you. And these are the ones who uh, have said, In all my delight, and the Lord has said to them. Here is an interesting verse in Isaiah 62 4, where these words are used Thou shalt no more be termed forsaken, God is saying to Israel. Neither shall thy land any more be termed desolate. For thou shalt be called Hephzibah, excuse me. And Hepzibah means delight. And you'll be called Beulah, which means married. For the Lord delighteth in thee, and thy land shall be married. God said to Israel, you are my delight, and I choose you as my people. These are the ones, the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. You know who you are? You're the bride of Christ. And why is that? Because the Lord Jesus Christ delighted in you. The Lord Jesus Christ wanted you. He died for you and paid the price so that you could become a saint, a holy one. And he delights in you. Imagine that. The Lord himself delights in you, the saints that are in the earth, and the one, the excellent ones in whom is all his delight. Let me ask you this. Whom is your delight? Who do you like to be with? I take it that the faces that I'm looking at in this room right now like God's people, especially on Sunday morning. And we want to be with God's people. These are the saints that are in the earth, these are the excellent ones that Jesus delights in. And shouldn't we delight in the same ones? Shouldn't we want to be part of the same group, uh, the saints and the excellent ones that God loves too? He calls you and he calls me excellent ones because his goodness has extended to us, not our goodness back to him. And so the identification with believers in verse 3, and then lastly in verse 4, we have a separation from unbelievers. I include this verse here. It could be a whole separate thought, I suppose, but I think it's a good contrast because the negative is always necessary. If there's a positive that we should be identified with believers in this world, we should be identified with other holy ones, we should be identified with those that God delights in, then the opposite would make sense, and that is we need to be careful and withdraw ourselves from those who do not love God and are not His delight. Not that we don't evangelize, not that we don't love souls as he did, but we can't be part of what the world system is, folks. And so notice he says, Their sorrow shall be multiplied who hasten after another god. I mean, they run quickly after idols. And the more they search after idols, the less fulfilled they are. The more sorrow comes into their life. Have you ever known more sorrow in your lifetime than we see in the world today? And more hatred and and ugliness from people who don't know the Lord? You see the word hasten? That also has kind of a marriage connotation to it. Uh, As a matter of fact, it can be used in the sense of hastening to take someone as a bride. One writer called it a bride price. Remember that old term for uh, here's what I will pay for your daughter. I mean, here's what I would give to have you as my wife, a bride price. And Alan Ross in his new commentary, he translated this, uh, these are people who barter for a new God. I want a new God. I want something else to worship. And those that do that who hasten, After another god, their sorrows will be multiplied. Old Matthew Henry famously said it this way, They that multiply gods multiply griefs to themselves. For whosoever thinks one god too little will find two too many, and yet hundreds not enough. When you hasten after other gods, your sorrows will be multiplied and you'll never have enough. You'll never find one that satisfies you. There's a proverb also that says, It is not safe to eat at the devil's mess, though the spoon be ever so long. It's very easy to put your spoon into the things of the world, into the devil's dinner, into the demons and the idols that are in this world. It's easy for you to do, and you can multiply the efforts to do it, but when you do, your sorrows will be multiplied. So their sorrows will be multiplied to hasten, look for, bargain for, barter for another God. And then these two statements, interesting, their drink offerings of blood will I not offer. You don't have to read far to find out that the ancient pagan religions of the world often mixed even human blood with their sacrifices, whether it's Baal worship or Dagon worship or Isis and Horus and in Egypt or whoever it is, uh, often they, they would literally drink human blood or mix it with their wines or mix it with uh, what they were doing. How pagan is that, especially when God said the life of the flesh is in the blood and don't you eat it. But this is what pagans do. They do it all the time. And so here is Paul or uh, David. Excuse me, saying, and here is the Lord Himself saying, "I am not going to partake in their offerings. They're pagan offerings. They're unbelieving offerings. They're offerings that don't honor God. I'm just not going to do it." I don't know how many times in church history I have read of believers saying, "I can't take." The, the Roman church's sacrament of drinking the blood of Christ. I can't uh, say that you transform this wine into blood and then you drink it? That would be crucifying the Lord afresh? I can't do that. And they've died in the fires or, or uh, on the chopping block for refusing to, to offer the same offerings that are offered. I think, folks... Of the abortion industry today. I think how terrible it is. Someone called abortion the sacrament of secularism. This is their sacrament. And think of the blood that has been shed in mother's wombs of innocent people so that they can have their idols and their freedom and everything that they want. It's a terrible thing. And here is someone saying, I will not offer to God what the pagans offer to him. And we have that being done so often today. Not only that, David records, and evidently the Lord himself would say, I will not take up their names into my lips. It's interesting because you can go back to Exodus 23:13. 13. You might even have a cross-reference, for example, in your Bible. Exodus 23:13 13 is, is part of the Mosaic Law, of course. And in the law it says, And in all things that I have said unto you, be circumspect, and make no mention of the name of other gods, neither let it be heard out of thy mouth. Don't use their names. And don't talk like they talk. And don't quote them. And don't let any of their names be on (laughs) your lips. You know, the fact is, folks, what is allowed on our lips will soon be in our heart. What we begin to talk about, what we begin to agree with, what we begin to laugh at uh, will soon be what is in our heart also. And God knew that. And God says, don't be partakers of that kind of thing. I think of two examples in the Old Testament. And one is Moses when he, when he comes down off of Sinai <laughs> And he's got the Ten Commandments with him, and he looks into the camp, and there they are having made a golden calf. And they're worshiping it and praising the golden calf. And Moses goes down and takes that golden calf and grinds it to powder and throws it uh, back in the fire. Don't ever talk like that before the holy God. He has just been 40 days and 40 nights before the God of all the world. I think of Hezekiah. Many, many years after Moses, and that brazen serpent that Moses made in the wilderness that served its purpose, that people looked at and they would live, in Hezekiah's day, hundreds of years later, they are worshiping that golden uh, uh, brazen serpent, I should say. They're worshiping it and praising it. And Hezekiah takes it and he grinds that to powder, and he calls it Nehushtan, a piece of brass. You don't say those kinds of things to a piece of brass. How even good things can be used in bad ways. So we need to be careful of that. Let me ask you, Christian, today, do we watch bloody violence on movies and television all the time? Do we play violent games all the time? Do we listen to The sickness of the songs that are sung today? Do we we use crude language out of our lips constantly? Do we laugh at profanity? Don't we have the, the names of the idols of this world on our lips constantly and in our eyes? And the Lord says, Nehushtan, break them to pieces. Get rid of them. Don't offer their offerings and don't mention their names on your lips. Well, let's bring this to a close. Matthew 20, Matthew sixteen twenty six. The Lord said, what is a man profited if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Here the Lord is saying, you are a soul and your soul, which is you, will live forever somewhere. In heaven or in hell? Are you going to exchange that soul for a few things in this world? Are you going to sell your soul to this world to have a few moments of pleasure and then be tormented forever? What can a man give in exchange for your soul? Would you do that and lose your own soul? If the soul is the true self, the deepest expression of who you are and of your faith, then I'm afraid that sometimes we are losing sight of a biblical worldview and a biblical faith in this, in this world. Many times we've exchanged our soul for a, met of, a mess of, of pottage, for a world, the flesh and the devil, saying, give me a few years, give me a few moments of pleasure in this world, and then I'll make it right with God if you have the chance to do so. We act as though our goodness that comes from us is a gift to God. As a matter of fact, God ought to feel lucky to have us. And yet the psalmist says, I have no goodness to give back to God. He didn't save me because of any goodness in me. He saved me because of his goodness and his love, his mercy, and his grace. I have nothing to give back to him. Now, I don't minimize the worth of a soul, Jesus paid the ultimate price for the souls of this world. But it's because we have no goodness that we can come to God. And God, out of his goodness then, accepted us by his grace. And so today is still the day of salvation. We still live in this age of grace. The Lord hasn't returned yet. If you're still capable of hearing his voice, don't harden your heart today. Come to the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. Receive His goodness for your eternal life. I think that's His message for you today. I want you to stand with me, if you will. And as we're standing, we will sing a song here. And we will trust that the Lord will speak to our hearts the way He desires. Let's go to Him in prayer. Father, thank You for this this wonderful psalm that we are reading. Thank You for the expressions of the Lord Himself and of David the psalmist and of the writers of our scripture. And Father, help us in our soul to cry out, oh, my soul, you are my Lord. And so, Father, help us to do that today. May someone who is not saved on this Lord's Day, this Memorial Day weekend, wherever they hear the gospel, may they receive Jesus Christ as Savior. And I pray, Father, that someone hearing my voice today, has been convicted and burdened about their own soul, that they would come to you today while they still have time. So thank you for these wonderful words. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for giving your goodness to us. And so, Father, I pray you'd bless and lift our hearts in this time that we sing, that we might respond to you in the way that we should. We'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Gordon's going to come and lead us in a song, our invitation song. Our invitation is always open, even as we're singing, I'm always here at the front, and our invitation remains open even after we sing and our service is dismissed. So come and lead us in the song.